O Father, by the blood of your Son, hold us fast in your sight. Hold us in your hand, O Lord, and preserve us for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the saints may be seated. Everyone sat down, so I guess everyone's a saint. Guess what we're turning this morning? No, just a guess. Just throw one out there. Book of Romans. Paul's epistle to the Romans this morning. Open with us to chapter 5. This might be the third week I was on these very same verses. I just don't want to go rapidly past some of the important themes here that the apostle labors over so well and so articulately and so powerfully, and he makes his arguments, and he presents to us the way of salvation in such a way, friends, that we, can, we know by the word of God that we can rely on it. It is not of us. It is all of the Spirit of God by the instrumentality of the Son of God, by the authority of the Father God. And so I ask you to turn there again today, and I'll read the first 11 verses for context, even though I'll focus primarily on one. (laughs) Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into his grace, in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for, us, died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received the reconciliation. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, give us a powerful, fresh revelation of this, your holy truth, O Lord, and perfect the words of your servant this morning, Father, as we have prepared them together for this moment for these people. O Father, let these things be so, and your spirit be present with us, and in your servant, through this, the the proclamation and exposition of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Paul writes, and not only that. It struck me, especially when he does things twice in verse 3 and in verse 11. And not only that. He's telling us something good, but not only that, there's more. Now we passed, if you remember in the last section, we talked about the but now sections, right? The but now sections, uh, that was his conjunctive of choice in the previous passages. And here, and not only that, seems to be his conjunctive between what he's saying here and what he wants us to add to it over here. 
So he wrote earlier, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh, no flesh will be justified in his, in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, but now what? But now that the blood of Christ has been shed, but now that sin and death have been defeated, but now that death could not hold the Savior, but now that all his predictions and promises have been fulfilled, but now that it is finished, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Praise God. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've never been so joyful to know that I'm a sinner. When I read this, it's like, I'm a sinner. I qualify. It's on all who have sinned. While we were still sinners, I was striving to be good. I couldn't do it. I've never been so happy to be a sinner in all my life. <laughs> when I hear the promises that are appropriated through faith in Christ... To the Ephesians, he, he gave us a nice but now. He said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And so thus far in the epistle, Paul extols the wonderful benefits of God's divinely accomplished justification between a righteous deity and sinful humanity. In other words, you don't have to trouble yourself with doubts. Because you didn't justify yourselves in the first place. He did it. He didn't even consult you. Friends, I always like to make this little illustration for us. You had no say in being born. No one gets consulted. And guess what? You have no say in being born again. God accomplished it for you. Birth is of God. It's out of our hands. It's quite out of our hands. And in that is the assurance, friends. The fact that he accomplished it. And so thus far in the epistle, Paul extols these wonderful benefits between the righteous deity and the sinful humanity. And the benefits of this work are bestowed upon all who believes. That's the saints, friends. That is the church. We are the church. And the church is something. It isn't just an ancillary thing that he added on to his plan. No, the church will be glorified in eternity. If we may stay for a moment in the Ephesians passage, I'd, I want to demonstrate the importance of the church in this exchange. All right? It seems to me that one of the great weaknesses in evangelical teaching today is the absence of a theology of the church, or what we might call an ecclesiology. We talk a lot about the individual being saved, and that, of course, is important and paramount. God saves us individually, but he saves us out of something, which is sin, and he saves us out of the world. He saves us from wrath. He saves us from eternal torment. So he saves us out of these things, or as the apostle Peter preached, be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. So you're saved out of this perverse and crooked generation, and just as we are saved out of something, we're saved into something, and that something that we're saved into is the church, also referred to as the body of Christ, also referred to as the bride of Christ, referred to as the household of God, the fellowship of the saints. Peter said that we're all spiritual stones being built up a spiritual house. 
And so Paul also goes on to develop this theme in Ephesians where he writes this. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Friends, try to keep in mind that every epistle that we read is either written to a church, in this case, the church at Rome, right? In Philippi, he wrote to the, uh, um, to the, to the church at Philippi with your elders and deacons, right? He knew they were, he knew they were there. He, they had an address, obviously. They could receive mail, right? Someone could deliver the epistle. They were ordered like a church. They had elders and deacons, which were by the prescription of Paul in other epistles, right? So he writes to churches. He also writes, when he doesn't write specifically to a church, he writes to pastors of churches in the so-called pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus. These are, these are pastors. And he tells Titus to put in all order all the churches of Crete. The churches were important to Paul. Paul went about the three continents, right? Middle Earth, Mediterranean means Middle Earth. He went about the three continents establishing churches. And it took him about 10 years to establish churches on all the three continents. And then when he heard something was going wrong, something was going awry in the churches, he wrote them a corrective letter for the most part. But he commended them for being saints, but he said, you may be on the wrong path in this area of doctrine or in this area of doctrine, and that's what he's doing here. He didn't found this church of Rome. Some of his friends founded it, but he wants to make sure, because he didn't found it, that they have the foundation of the teaching of Christ and the truth of the gospel, all right? So he writes epistles to churches, and he knows they'll be read there, and so he says, you were you're no longer strangers and, foreign, and foreigners, but you're members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. He goes on, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Everyone has their gifts. Every part does its share. It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Paul is teaching the church to edify the church. Every part does its share from whom the whole body joined and knit together. I challenge you to try fulfilling that without a church. And so having already labored over the themes and concepts connected with justification, the apostle goes on to speak of even greater benefits of justification by faith. In, in this section, the phrase, and not only that, seems to be his conjunctive of choice. Paul's been teaching on the operation of the Spirit the Spirit of God in behalf of believers. He's been teaching primarily on the position of the believer before God due to his justification. You have a new standing before God. You're at peace with a deity that you were heretofore at enmity with. You could even say at war with. And we noted that that's a legal transaction between God the Father and God the Son. They decided to, to justify you right, in the divine halls of justice without consulting you. 
They paid, they paid the price for your sin. God comes up with this plan. Jesus goes along with it. I'm being simplistic here. And he fulfills it. And the Holy Spirit applies it to the elect. That's those who believe. Those who are also gifted with faith, which is access into this new relationship. And so he's enumerated three benefits thus far. The first, he said, was peace with God. And if you remember, that's in this instance, he's not talking about peace of mind. He talks about peace of mind in other instances where he says you will have a peace that surpasses understanding. That's sort of a personal peace about circumstances, even tumultuous circumstances. So the first thing, though, is peace with God. In other words, we're not at enmity with God. We were formerly antagonists. Man was against God. God was against man. But God reconciled man. He paid the price of man's offense. And he made that very clear. And so the first benefit that we have is this this wonderful peace with God. You hear people say, I made my peace with God. Um, well, that's good. That's a good thing to do. But really, God already made the peace. And if you have faith, your peace is secure. Um, and so that's the first benefit. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Where a state of enmity once existed, a new state of peace now prevails between God and the believer. And I've labored over this for weeks now, as, as the Apostle Paul has in the text. This reconciliation, friends, this justification's been accomplished without our aid. Indeed, it occurred while we were still enemies. In other words, while we were totally unable to even consider uh, making peace with God. The offenses we had were far beyond anything we could ever pay back. Our access to the benefits of justification are by faith, that is, belief in the finished work of Christ. And so the second benefit was what he called access by faith into his grace. So we have peace with God, and then by faith we have access into that peace. And so he puts the building together for us, the doctrinal building. And we can readily see that the Lord has filled his great and precious promises by securing this reconciliation, this justification, by paying for the transgressions of the saint. Our faith provides access. In other words, it becomes the medium of exchange between the holder of our benefits and our reception of them. And I give you this illustration. Grace here is pictured as a whole new world of divine blessings. Just waiting for the faith of the saints to be presented as credentials to entering into and enjoying the blessings of grace. It's as if grace is in a great warehouse. And all the benefits of being members of the household of God are in that warehouse. And all you need to get in is faith. All you need to do at the door is say, I believe in Christ and his finished work in my behalf. And you enter in. So access by faith is the second blessing. And so we can readily see that the Lord has fulfilled these promises. He's provided access. From Hebrews, we read of this very thing, this entering into the throne room where grace is stored up for the saints ready to be received. And so we read this, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, we've been invited in. 
and we enter by prayer. Only those who are at peace with God through faith may enter boldly into his grace. Only those who are justified may come expectantly, expecting that he might grant us our requests. We can come for mercy. We can come to have our needs met. There are the benefits Paul extols for those who are justified by faith. So once arriving in this domain of grace, the believer may do nothing other than exercise his third benefit of membership. He may rejoice. He may rejoice in hope. The third benefit. I don't believe the saints will need lessons in rejoicing. I never did. I'm a pretty good rejoicer. Um, I like to rejoice. Um, it seems to me we come ready to express joy in the presence of God. I think when I came, I was looking for some joy. And something that would last, though. Not a party, not, not, not something transitory, but something solid. Something I could hold on to and walk through my life with. No, I don't think I needed great lessons in rejoicing. Calvin describes uh, the phrase this way. Actually, um, let me go back to verse 5. Because of the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Calvin uh, comments on rejoicing in hope this way. He says, According then to the present passage, we then only make advances in patience as we ought when we regard it as having been continued to us by God's power and thus entertain hope as to the future that God's favor, which has even succored us in our necessities, will never be wanting to us. Now that's a mouthful, but he simplifies it in another statement which I'll give you. But I want you to notice, um, first of all, there's a couple words here that are, are a little archaic. The word sucker, familiar with the word uh, that God's favor, which has succored us. It's not sucker like P.T. Barnum, you know, there's a sucker born every minute. That's not the kind of sucker we're talking about. This sucker is giving aid to. It's giving comfort to, okay? He's succored us in our necessities that we will never be wanting in these necessities. Wanting, doesn't, wanting means lacking, all right? In, um, in medieval speak. This was written in the 16th century. So that's certainly a mouthful. But the theologian states it plainer in his interpretation of verse 5. Verse 5 says, hope maketh not ashamed. All right? Or in my Bible it says, now hope does not disappoint. And Calvin writes, hope regards salvation as most certain. That's what hope is. There's no disappointment with hope. And so we have to discuss hope a little bit this morning. We ought to make distinctions about our English usage of the word hope and the New Testament usage. We use these words differently. Um, in our language, hope is really just a wish, right? And we say, um, I hope it doesn't rain. Right? We have little hopes in our life. Oh, I hope they get here on time. It's not certain they're going to get there on time. But you're, and, you're, and you're wishing for it. But the word in Greek, the elpis, doesn't mean that at all. We may hope for a sunny day, and the object of our hope may be a prediction by our favorite meteorologist, who, if you have not noticed, is not infallible. Right? I tease the weather people all the time when Karen and I are watching the weather. Weathermen, friends, make very poor prophets and prophetesses. If they existed in the first century, they would have all been stoned by now. You can't be a false you can't be a false prophet in the Jewish era. There was, uh, there was severe repercussions for that. Uh, and so in our culture, hope is a hope-so sort of hope. 
In English, that's what we mean when we say I hope, right? But not so in the New Testament. The rendering of the word translated hope is the word elpis. Elpis is the expectation of a guaranteed outcome. You understand the difference? Hope is used in various ways in Greek and in English, I must tell you. Um, And so Jesus Christ is our hope. So hope is a verb, and it's also a noun. Jesus Christ is our hope. In other words, our hope is inextricably bound. You like that word? Inextricably? That means unable to unextricate. It's bound to the person of Christ. And he's our hope. He can't be thwarted, and our expectation can't be either. It's tied in with Christ. All right? That's why Paul could write to the Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. To Timothy, he wrote likewise, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. All right? So our hope rests on him. We have a great song that we sing by Fanny Crosby called Blessed Assurance. That blessed assurance is Christ himself. In this sense, hope is our expected outcome being attached to the object of our hope, which is Jesus Christ himself. That's why Paul can say hope does not disappoint. It isn't tied to a weatherman, it's tied to Christ. All right? And so having already enumerated all of these great and precious promises, all of these eternal benefits, the benefits of a transaction fulfilled between God the Father and God the Son, the believer, we're told, has even more benefits from his justification than these. And so we read, and not only that. So I've spent the first half of the sermon time to explain to you not only that, what what the previous promises were, he wants to go on to other promises. And I thought I should not skip by this lightly. Not only that, not only this peace with God, not only this access by faith, not only this rejoicing in hope, not only this assurance of our salvation that was bought in Christ, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. In other words, we have tribulations. We glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, I want to spend some time on this because I think in some ways and certainly in some emphases by certain teachers in evangelicalism today, this is a serious letdown. Some people claimed faith in Christ because they thought there would be no more tribulations. That's why we're here. The apostle goes on to stipulate the great strength in the doctrine of justification by faith by noting its resilience in adversity. Not the fact that adversity is banished now. In fact, our faith takes us well beyond mere resilience. What's resilience? It's the uh, ability to recover quickly. How's that? We're resilient. We're those who may take even the hardships of life as occasions to rejoice in hope. It's difficult. I know it is. You know how I know it is? Because it's difficult for me. The last time I was in a serious tribulation, a life-threatening tribulation. Some of you were there. The last time I was in there, I finally I said to my wife, you know, I'm in my 60s and I'm a man of faith. I'm not going to despair. <laughs> I am going to exercise my faith, and I'm going to rejoice through this one. And you sort of have to determine to do that, because no one's saying this is easy. 
But this is part of being a believer. Now, at the outset, I could understand that that seems a letdown. We're the beneficiaries of all the benefits enumerated in the passage. And they're beyond compare. They're beyond any hope of, of, in, of this life or by, beyond any hope of this world. They may be appropriated now, presently, but they're eternal in scope. All of these gifts are eternal in scope. Our gospel is indeed a great gospel. Our Lord is a great Lord. He's even great enough to keep us safe from all temporal trials and tribulations, if that was his plan. But apparently it's not. He's chosen for us an even greater path to glory than that. We wouldn't escape tribulation. We'll go through it, glorying in it. And the Apostle Paul is presenting this as a great gift. So we have to take it as that. He's chosen for us a greater path to glory than escaping tribulation, but rather glorying in it. We may not only rest in his mercy, in his wonderful grace, in his magnanimous invitation to the very throne room where the benefits of grace are dispensed, but he has determined that we will endure tribulation in order that we may experience an even greater glory than those who are not tried and challenged in this way. You know, I, I said in a eulogy for our friend the other day, it was based on a verse of Scripture, a very well-known verse to you, and the verse was, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. God wept, and he wept over death. His friend died, and he grieved it. It's an amazing thing. God is with us, grieving with us, striving with us in our grief, in our trials, in our tribulations. God is there with us. Jesus wept. And then the bystander said, see how he loved him. God didn't not love him by weeping. He expressed his love by weeping. He went through the trial with them. It's too wonderful really to imagine. But there it is. Remember, when you're going through a tribulation, Jesus wept. He took our part with us in our trial. He was there with us. In fact, later in the epistle, Paul will describe this glorying in tribulations as our being what? Remember this? More than conquerors. More than conquerors. We do more than just get through it, friends. We do more than overcome. We're more than conquerors. We glory in the trials he gives us. It's a benefit we have. And I want you to know, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to try to take this apart a little bit and unpack some of this stuff from commentary by Calvin or Martin Lloyd-Jones, but that doesn't mean, and I'm going to get into this, that doesn't mean we like the tribulation. Friends, if you like it, it's not a trial. You know, you know what comes to mind when I say that? You know, over the years, we've, we've taught from the scriptures from, on the relationship between husband and wife, and the husband is the head of the family, and the wife is the loving, um, you know, uh, partner who submits to the head of the family. And uh, we always get to the place, I mean, it's replete throughout the Bible. I mean, it's 1 Peter 3, Colossians 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about this relationship. It's not some little corner of the Bible that's a big secret, you know, and we get to the place and there's always someone who says, you know, some wonderful sister in Christ who says, I submit to him most of the time. And I say, but are those the times when you agree with him? Because submission means you, you do what you're told when you don't agree. And it's the same here. It's the same here. Glorying 
is when you take heart and exercise your faith at a time when it hurts to. Not at a time when it feels good to. But the hurt is real. Because if it isn't real, then it isn't tribulation. And Calvin will explain that as we go through this. But I wanted that at the outset for us to understand. So more than conquerors, Calvin again, he writes, It hence appears that the Lord tries us by adversities for this end, that we would glory, he means. And he goes on, that our salvation may thereby be gradually advanced. Friends, we like to say we live by blessing, from blessing to blessing, which we do, but we also live from trial to trial. And if you don't, let me tell you, I do. And so he writes, those evils then, and he calls out tribulations evils. He says, those evils then cannot render us miserable, which do in a manner promote our happiness. And thus is proved what he had said, that the godly have reasons for glorying in the midst of their afflictions. Friends, Calvin knew about this. After about the age 25, he was sickly for the rest of his life, which was only another 30 years. He was a sickly man. He struggled with all sorts of digestive issues and... um, and, you know, breathing issues, all sorts of things. He lived in Geneva at a time when the plague came there five times in his lifetime. Talk about pandemics. There's a pandemic. You know, just as an aside, the, 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 the uh, ministers of the town of Geneva came together. They were no real separation of church and state in that era. And they came together, and they had a hospital for the dead and dying outside the city, which was wise. They understood germs and spread and all that. They didn't stop meeting for their services. And they would take a vote as to which ministers would go out and minister to the sick who were in the hospitals. And Calvin volunteered every time, but they told him, you can't go, you're too important, you're the head of the whole board here of elders, we can't let you go. So each time they came and voted that someone would go and deal with the sick, other ministers went, and every one of them died of plague. It hence appears, Calvin said, with knowledge, (laughs) that the Lord tries us by adversities for this end. Book of Ecclesiastes, in the day of prosperity rejoice, In the day of adversity, consider God has appointed one as well as the other. Both come. From the book of Romans, chapter chapter 8, consider the goodness and the severity of God. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 11, I believe. Consider the goodness and the severity of God. So all these things have been established as the primary benefits of salvation by grace through faith, being justified by the blood of Christ. But the apostle is not content that we end here with regard to the power and the benefit of salvation. And so he offers the saints of Rome this wonderful conjunction between those benefits and another more climactic benefit. And so we glory in these benefits, but we also glory in tribulations. Now, it's most important for us to come to an understanding of just what is meant here. Let me make it personal for you. I think I have a reasonably good understanding of what Paul is saying by presenting tribulations as opportunities to glory. At the same time, I'm a person who will willingly admit to you that I much prefer an easier path to glory. I do not wish for trials. I do not pray for trials. I would much rather know quiet times than tumultuous times, so let's understand that we need not desire pain in order that we may glory in it. Okay? We're not masochists. This is not a masochistic teaching. All right? Calvin again. And I might say that 
Lloyd-Jones' commentary was quite in agreement. So he writes, by saying that the saints glory in traditions, he's not to be understood as though they dreaded not nor avoided adversities. They did dread the adversities. That's not what he means by glorying. He says, don't consider that the saints were not distressed with their bitterness when trials came upon them. For this, and then he writes this, there's no patience with there's no feeling of bitterness. In other words, the whole point of the tribulation is to produce perseverance, which goes to patience, right? Which goes to experience, to be there for people who are going through something you already know how to go through. You see what I mean? We don't escape it. We minister to one another in the midst of it. He says, but as in their grief and sorrow, they are not without great consolation. That's just the the point I make about John 11 where Jesus wept. He's in there with them because they regard that whatever they bear is dispensed to them for good by the hand of a most indulgent father. They are justly said to glory for whenever salvation is promoted, there is not wanting a reason for glorying. So we know in the tribulation that this produces a greater glory for God, our resilience in it. Now I try to think of illustrations of these kind of things, and there's a great one in the uh, book of Hebrews chapter 12 about fathers and sons and chastening, and which I'll, uh, which I'll talk, touch on. But I thought of these other ones. Did you ever, ever play sports? You ever have a really hard coach? I had coaches who I would swear just didn't like me. They were so hard. They were so, it seemed foolish. Run another 10 laps. Give me another 50, you know, whatever it might be, you know. But they're doing it to strengthen you on the other end for a purpose, right? There was no animosity involved. It was a relationship of a committed, loving person to build up the strengths of, a, of another person, a person who needs to contend in this life in some way, in this case, in a sporting event. I also think of those of you who are in the military, the drill instructors, right? The drill instructor is up in your face, and he's screaming at you, and you can't make eye contact with him, or down you go. He doesn't hate you. He's building you up, and it takes... He can't just tell you great war stories and make a soldier out of you. You're the real soldier, you know, he can do that with the journalist that's going in, the embedded journalist, but he can't do that with the soldier. The soldier has to be toughened up by the actual experience. So they make it harder on the way there, so when you get there, you can glory in it. Does that help? So I think it's humanly reasonable, and I add the word humanly, although it's redundant, but I think in our humanness, we reason, it's reasonable to conclude that trials are not things we strive to encounter, right? There's a time to mourn. And there's a time to laugh, right? There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. And friends, I'd rather dance. And by the way, I'm a really good dancer. Um, I'm a terrible dancer. I'm a Baptist. Baptists don't dance. Everyone knows that. But we don't wish, we don't wish for bad times or hard things. You know, I was, I was, I was uh, building, I've been a builder in my civilian life, as I've told you, and I had a blueprint, and I was building this very ornate addition on a friend's house, and he said, I want to add this conical structure, six-sided thing, which each on, you know, it had all these angles, and I figured them out, I think they were 18-degree angles or something like that, and, he, and I said, oh, you're going to add that to this? He goes, Danny, he says, 
it'll be a challenge. And I said, I, I hate a challenge. Just let me, let me do this and get my money and go home. And of course, I was whining. He was kind of a, we became good friends, and I did produce a very good product for him. But um, I actually meant that. I just didn't want something else to make it harder, you know. But you got to give them what they want, right? Paying customer. Um, so I don't wish for hard times. There are things as undesirable to us as they are to anyone who suffers need or lack or loss or pain or persecution in this life. We don't like it. Nobody does. And so we're not called to court disaster that we may glory. Oh, Lord, give me some dragons to slay. Give me some dragons to cook on the fire. But I don't want to slay any. And so it's a great theme of the New Testament, and it's spoken about in nearly every chapter and certainly in every book. And so Paul presents tribulations as a benefit to salvation. And we have to examine the subject more closely. So let's go through the New Testament examples of this. Let's begin with Jesus, who made it very plain in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Imagine saying that to people. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so, for, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The great men who got through these things went before you and now you're in a class with them. You've entered in the procession of saints down through the ages. You've entered in as a more than conqueror, overcomer type. All right, And so a first point of glorying in tribu- tribulation is that it's part of the cost of discipleship. It's not merely that we glory in spite of trials. It does not merely mean that we glory in the midst of trials, friends. Though both of these reactions would be part of the process. It's rather that we glory on account of our trials. That's the message of Paul to the Romans. And I think that we should be able to see how that was quite a useful lesson for first-century Christians. First-century Christians who were being tortured and ridiculed and martyred for the entertainment of crowds. I think this would have been a useful teaching to them, if perhaps not so real in our lives. If you've ever read of some of the saints that were martyred in the Colosseum, there's a mother and daughter, Perpetua and Felicita, who I've told you about, who went in there and they were gored by animals, and I won't even go through it, but all of these horrible things until finally the crowd asked for mercy, behead them and get it over with. And of course the axeman missed, and Felicita helped him guide his hand because he was trembling. They were afraid of these Christians who could endure this. So it was a useful lesson, certainly in Paul's day. You know, all the apostles, including Paul, were all killed for their faith, with the exception probably of John, who was put on Patmos, and the legends are he was eventually released and went and died of his old age. So Peter would say, from experience, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. He met real fire. Fiery trial, which is to try you as though some... Do not think it strange as though some strange thing happened to you, he said. But rejoice inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, he writes, happy are you. 
For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then he adds this. On their part, he's blasphemed. But on your part, he's glorified. In other words, the one that's persecuting you is blaspheming God. But you enduring it in glory is praising God. It's glorifying God. From the book of Acts, we read of when the high priest and the other Sadducees sought to silence the apostles. And so we read this, Luke writes, And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Good luck with that one, right? Don't speak in the name of Jesus to these guys. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then Luke adds this, And then daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Sometimes you have to go against the authority. We preach the gospel, and insofar as it depends on us, we do not do it to antagonize authorities. I'm not here to antagonize agnostic leaders of the country. That's not why we're here. But if it does antagonize them, so be it. You know, that's what freedom of speech is all about, first of all. It isn't, it, freedom of speech, the First Amendment isn't so you can say nice things that everybody likes. You don't need an amendment for that. So you can say things that you just feel like saying. We decided during the government-ordered shutdowns, remember that? We came in here and we got uh, the order. What was it? 15 days to flatten the curb, 14 days to flatten the curve. I understood that. I thought it was reasonable. And I thought if the community has to bear this, we're a community church, we should bear it with the community. I put a letter out. I asked people not to come to service. I stood here and preached this when we started. Joe started putting out the YouTube live so you could be with us online. And the only people that were here were me and Bill, our wives, maybe the musicians. And I asked that the single guys who wouldn't have any fellowship during the week would be here. Remember, we, we tried to go along with this. We thought it was reasonable. But then it went on and on, and we realized it was political, and it was not really uh, for social benefit. And then the, st- the data was out, and it showed that none of this helped the situation. And I remember when we decided that we should just come back, regardless, right? And I remember it was, uh, <laughs> Karen was talking to Mrs. Listenberger. How many times do I bring up in sermons that Karen was talking to Mrs. Listenberger on the phone? And in the background, Eric said, can we come back to church? <laughs> and I said, you know what, hon, just tell them to come. It ain't my church. I'm not making the laws. You want to come here? It's your building? Come on. Everybody came. Everybody came back, and we just came back. Now, I suppose we could have been fined or something could have happened because we're hidden down in here and the Lord sort of kept us out of sight. But I don't know if in Lakeville or in Massachusetts they were really doing that kind of thing. But um, we decided to just come back together like the apostles. Glory in the tribulation. But we don't court disaster. We do not want to make one another sick. We did not wish to die of a virus. We, we still urged precautions. We didn't serve food at that time. It seemed frivolous to me for everyone to handle stuff and pass it around, right? We didn't come to service if we were sick. Our focus was to balance safety and liberty and not to dispense with the one at the expense of the other, right? You have to have both, remember? Remember your uh, American history? Somebody said, one, one loudmouth patriot said, but as for me, I, not know, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death, right? I think he was the, uh, 
governor of Virginia at the time, Patrick Henry, when he said it. But um, we don't talk that way anymore. It's give me safety at all cost. No, we have to preach the gospel. Calvin preached it through five um, plague outbreaks in Geneva. So we came and we preached the gospel. And uh, some people got sick. We were, we were grateful to God that we never had a massive outbreak. But we could have. So Paul wrote on the subject to the Corinthians. He said, our light afflictions are but for a moment. And he's talking about the fleeting nature of life anyway. Right? Our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And what Paul was burdened and sorely tried by his so-called thorn in the flesh, you know the story from 2 Corinthians... He beseeched the Lord in prayer three times for its removal. And what did the Lord say? What was his answer? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The Lord didn't need Paul to exercise his strength in strength. He needed him to exercise his strength in weakness so that the Spirit of God could be his strength. And so Paul writes, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. In this instance, boast means glory. All right, now glory, doxa, is a Greek word. It has a lot of different meanings. There is a glory about things. The sun has a glory. It has a, a corona. I guess you can't use that word anymore. It means so many things today. I get the stock of corona beer went down during the pandemic because people thought it was virus beer. But corona means something. It's like a crown, right? Um, it's also a, 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 a section of Queens in New York City. But Corona, uh, let's forget Corona. The glory of the sun is the light that it puts out around it, right? Remember Moses came down from the mountain and he had, and, and his face reflected the glory of God. No one could look at him. He had to wear the veil. <laughs> he had to have the veil around his, his face because the glory of God was contagious. That's one use of the word glory, right? Another use of, of glory is is reputation. It's like he has a glorious reputation, so he's, he's glorious. Or there's, um, there's the use that it has to do with the nature of the thing. Each thing has its own glory, Paul wrote to the uh, Corinthians, right? But here, glory means boast. I would rather glory in my tribulations. How does he say it? I will rather boast in my infirmities. In other words, I'm not ashamed of my weaknesses because Christ is my strength. We all knew as humans we would have weaknesses. So he boasts in his weaknesses. In the power of Christ that may rest upon me, or rather that the power of Christ may rest upon me, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. That means sicknesses. In reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So this theme of glorying and tribulation is not relegated to some little section of the scriptures or one verse from the book of Romans. To the Philippians he wrote, Unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. James said the same thing as Paul when he wrote, 
My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I want to address that there are whole denominational interests in the evangelical church today who teach that trials of certain sorts belong to the unbeliever and to the unfaithful and are proof of your false faith. It's very sad because I don't know how you can download that as your primary doctrine in terms of the faith preachers and teachers today, right? The prosperity gospel teachers today. I don't know how you can download that with all these scriptures that I've just pointed out to you. Sickness, lack, poverty are the curses of the faithless. Friends, they're just the curses of life. It can come upon anyone. And I'll close with the teaching that these faith teachers promise too much. I do not glory in the failure of their message, but I'll say to you today that one of their most vocal of their number did die of coronavirus, and I have no need to say his name because it's a dis- I don't need to disgrace the man. I believe these are brothers in Christ who have a bad, who have a false direction in their teaching. We can suffer all the things the world suffers, friends. But Paul says that by our access through justification by faith, we can glory in those times. And that it's Christ in us producing something that glorifies him. You see, we too will suffer in this world some of the same things that unbelievers suffer. It's the sign of the cult that too much is promised. And our faith does not finally make us physically invincible and financially secure. There is some teaching on how to do those things. There's certain things that that uh, we should certainly prohibit that would, could destroy our health. And there's certain things we could prohibit that are taught in Scripture, principles of financing and things that could, that could regulate our finances and our financial life, certainly, right? Things that have to do with enormous debt that we seem to live on today in our culture. We could do away with that as the people of God and be secure. But we're not just granted it. Our faith does not finally make us physically invincible and financially secure. All these things that attack the unbeliever may attack the faithful as well. But we are those who glory in them. We know they're not to be thought of as some strange thing that comes upon us. It's the glory of Christ that our trials make us think of his trials. It's the glory of Christ that our trials send us to Christ. And the patient character that trials produce in us give us a steadfastness to carry on in faith. Friends, I'm going to tell you, some of you were here in 2013 when I had a very severe accident. You may remember. I had a fall. I was building a big barn right up the street, one of those old big country barns that people want. And I was, it was the middle of January. It was January 9th. James was the only one with me. I slid down the roof. I was, <laughs> I was setting up... Um, safety equipment so that no one would fall. And uh, I slid down the roof. I missed the staging. I ended up on the ground. Every rib broken. Every rib broken in several places. Right shoulder, right wrist. You know, didn't quite see how I would survive that, but the organs were intact. (laughs) Nothing really that you need, I guess, got broken. Um, However, I, I did have Um, already had a a heart valve implant, which some of you knew in 2006. I'll give you my whole roster of all my medical stuff now. 
but it had to be redone. So after I got better from this other stuff, I still had to go through this, and it was, you know, this was a long, hard year for us. Looking back, I've said it many times, that was the best year we ever had in this ministry. And the reason I say that is as soon as I could move again, we finished building this building that we were building for 12 years. That was such a glorious thing to me. And in the middle of it, I remember I was here with the building inspector. He was inspecting the insulation. It was about 95 degrees that day. It was so hot. And I said to him, Nate, I don't know if I'm going to be here for the final inspection. And I told them the story. They didn't know if I could get through this operation, right? And I went through. And two weeks later, I was dancing at my sister's 40th wedding anniversary. And I didn't know. I wasn't dancing fast, but I was... <laughs> slow dancing. I was slow dancing with my wife at this thing. But um, it was such a good year. It's so memorable to me as a year of getting through stuff, as a year of getting stuff done to the glory of God. And by the following Easter, we met here for the first time. That was just my memory of it. What was a very bad thing turned out to really be a turning point and a very good thing. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it means to glory in your tribulation. But it's the glory of Christ that make us think of his trials. It's the glory of Christ that our trials send us to Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews went, said, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? There's that whole coach analogy, if you will. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Friends, if you don't have hardships, you're not a Christian. I mean, I, you tell me if that's not what he's writing there, and I'll, and I'll hear you, but he says you're illegitimate. That means bastard sons. That means you don't bear his name. You're illegitimate and not sons, because the father of the son takes the initiative to hone the gifts of the son through hardship. That's what he's saying here. Job said very famously, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's glorying in tribulation. It's all a testing process. And so Peter writes this, In this greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, who having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. O Father, in Jesus' name, teach us, O Lord, to endure all things to the glory of Christ. The good, the easy, the prosperous, and the difficult, and the severe, O Lord. We ask for the grace to endure them all to the glory of God. Amen.